of high school, I took a psychology and sociology class, and one of the kids that sat in the row next to me, his name was Andrew, and every test, Andrew would cheat through every test. It just so happened that the smartest kid in the class sat right in front of Andrew, which was great for me, because I would just get to hear some of the answers fly out anyways, and then I could check, and sometimes I was right, and sometimes I would need to make a little adjustment on my test. And one day, we all got our tests back, and we, we were friendly with each other, so we all started talking about what we got on our tests. And of course, the smartest kid in the class, he got a 100. I got a 95. Somebody else near us got a 90. And they were like, Andrew, what'd you get? And he said, I don't know. We're like, huh? What do you mean you don't know? And he said, all it says is see me. And so he went over, and he had a very quiet conversation with Mr. Gorley teacher. And then he came back to his seat. He said, well, I would have gotten all the answers right, but Mr. Gorley gave me a different test. <laughs> and so instead of getting a 100%, he literally got every answer on the test wrong. He got a zero. He missed every single one. He had good answers, but it was just the wrong test. And I am convinced that there are a lot of really good people. There are a lot of religious people. There are a lot of well-meaning, positive people who will one day stand before God with some really good answers. But the problem is their answers are to the wrong test. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us. We're going to be looking in the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 3. It's a book in the New Testament. If you have your phones or your tablets, there's an app available called the Bible app. Once you download and install the Bible app on your device, you can follow right along with us under the events feature within the Bible app, either by enabling your locations or typing in zip code 54201 there Lakeside Community Church will pop up and you can follow along with us there if you are here with us and you don't have the app ready to go the verse will be available on the screens to your side and if you're streaming from home thanks for joining us the verses will be available on your screen below as we look today in just a minute at Romans chapter 3 we're going to start in verse 21 but a couple of weeks ago we started brand new and what we saw the very first week is that the moment we make the decision to follow Jesus we become new creations. We become new creations. And the way that's possible is because we have been reconciled to God. And so that's what we saw in the very first week that through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, he makes us brand new people and we can be reconciled to the creator we rebelled against. So that's what we saw in week one, that we are reconciled. And then last week we saw that not only has Jesus reconciled us, but Jesus actively mediates on our behalf. Jesus actively takes our, our situations and our requests to God on our behalf. And Jesus not only has reconciled us, but he actively mediates us be, between us and God now. And today we're going to see kind of how all of this is possible and what's really important for people to understand what really matters and how we can be reconciled, how we can have Jesus as our mediator. That's what we're going to look at today from Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21 where we read these words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So I'm going to read that again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And we're just going to stop right there, and we really need to have a foundational understanding of this. We need to really understand what the what the point of this is and what the Apostle Paul in writing the book of Romans is trying to get across to us here and what he's talking about because this sounds kind of judicial. It sounds like very, very formal language. So what is the big idea? What is the overview that's being discussed here in Romans 3.21 and throughout the next few verses that we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 3? And the very basic point that we need to understand as the foundational point is this. You can't obtain God's favor by what you do. You can't obtain God's favor by what you do. And there are a lot of good people. There are a lot of religious people. There are a lot of moral people. There are a lot of positive people. However you want to decipher it, however you want to determine it, there are a number of people out there who live life with the philosophy, if I do more good than I do bad, at the end of my life, when the scales are weighed, it's going to come out in my favor. Now, all of us can think of 10 people that we are better than. That's not hard. You start with Hitler, right? Everybody starts with Hitler. And then, so Hitler's 10. And then depending on your politics, it's either the current president or the former president. They're number nine. And then there you go. You only have to come up with eight more. I've, I've got the first two settled for you, all right? You only have to come up with eight more. Eight more people that you were better than, the first two were covered for you. We can all do that all day long. I mean, that's easy to do. Even the most humble among us can easily point out the people that, all right, we're, yeah, that's, yeah, easy. What's also true is that as we ponder it and as we think about it, we can all name 10 people who are better than us. And therein lies the problem with this this whole way of thinking. If it were a matter of doing more good than bad, who determines what's good enough? And who even determines what's good? Because some cultures define good in different ways than other cultures. And if there's a standard of more good than bad, well, then we have to decide what's actually good. And did I do more of that than I did bad? And you'd be constantly living a life of worry and constantly trying to factor in and fathom, well, does all of the good outweigh my bad in this situation? And does all of, does all of the nice things that I've done outweigh how I've not been the kindest person in all of these situations and all of these scenarios? And there is no absolute. The good news is we don't really have to worry about that anyway. Because God says, I'll give you a standard. I'll give you an absolute. So you can know for sure. Which I think most of us would prefer. Until maybe we get to that standard. Because God says, here's the standard. It's perfection. And even the best among us have to shake our heads. We don't meet that standard. We've missed it. Every single one. And that's God's standard 
the standard of perfection. And so what we're told right off the bat in Romans 3 is you can't obtain God's favor. You can't obtain perfection. You can't obtain righteousness, as the Bible calls it. You can't obtain this. It's not a question of whether or not you do more good than bad. It's not a question of whether or not you serve people. It's not a question of whether or not you give money. It's not a question of whether or not you do any of these things. There is literally nothing you can do. Nothing. There is a standard and you don't meet it. The standard is perfection. And once you've, once you've blown it, you've blown it. You can't attain it. And this is the standard that we're dealing with. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now, now we have to ask the question, all right, if we can't meet the standard, where does that leave us? And as we're going to continue to unpack today, while we can't meet the standard, God met it for us when he sent his son Jesus who lived a perfect life he was fully God and fully man he died on the cross for our sins and rose again three days later he lived a perfect life now sometimes we ask the question as a result of Jesus having come and as a result of Jesus having met the standard what do we do with the old testament do we just get to throw it away and some people are like, yeah, let's throw it away because it's kind of messed up in some spots and it's really got some really weird restrictions and sometimes and I don't know, I got tattoos and I eat shrimp. Like, let's just, let's throw it away, all right? Let's, let's just, Jesus, all right, awesome. Let's get rid of it. But that's the question is what do we do with the Old Testament as a result of Jesus having come? And therein we remember this, that Jesus came he was that perfection, and in so being that perfection, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the perfection of it. Every rule and every regulation that the Old Testament presents, every rule and every regulation that the Old Testament presents was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the perfection that you and I cannot be. He was the perfection that you and I are not. Jesus was that perfection. He was the fulfillment of the law. But not only was Jesus the fulfillment of the law and the perfection of the law, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the punishment of the law. The Old Testament makes it very clear that you don't meet God's standard. And we don't measure up. And I can't do it on my own. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. But God still loves us in spite of the fact that we don't measure up. God still loves us in spite of the fact that we are imperfect. God still loves us in spite of the fact that we all have regrets and we all have mistakes. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that perfection. And Jesus is the fulfillment of our punishment. Romans would go on to say the cost of our sin, the cost of our imperfection is death. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that. The perfection of the law and the punishment of the law is all fulfilled in Jesus. It's not dependent upon us. And the Old Testament's whole point is the point to Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. Then we continue in Romans 3. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. Meaning God sees all who follow him through a relationship with Jesus as perfect. God looks at all who follow him through a relationship with Jesus and he sees them as they are perfect. You ever have a friend or maybe a kid who's dating somebody and for the life of you, you just don't see it? You're just like, whoa, they're not attractive, their personality's not appealing, don't mesh well. I mean, if, if you've ever been in that situation where, where a friend of yours is dating somebody or a, or a kid of yours is dating somebody and you just don't see the appeal, you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out what it is that they see in the other person because you don't see it. For the life of you, you can't see it. And the reality is, what's driving your friend or driving your kid in their relationship with that person is they see something you don't see. They see something in the other person where even if they see the red flags and even if they see the things that should worry them, they're willing to push those things aside because they see something in the other person that they are willing to pursue a relationship with. And it will drive you crazy because you don't see those things. In the same way, when we've made a decision to follow after God through a relationship with Jesus, when God looks at us, He no longer sees our mistakes, He no longer sees our imperfections, He no longer sees our regrets that everybody else sees and everybody else knows and everybody else sees those things and defines us by them. But when God sees us, He sees the perfection of Jesus. That's what God sees, which is really good news because what this means is if you're a Christian, it means that God has forgotten about the sins you still remember. God has forgotten about the sins that you still remember, the sins that still plague you, the sins that still take up place in your mind, the ones that you've gone to therapy over, the ones that you've talked to your spouse about. God, God has forgotten the sin that you still remember. If you're a follower of Jesus. And this is exceptional news. Because we all have regrets. We all have embarrassment. We all have those things in our past that we wish we could change. And that could haunt us. God doesn't see those things for those who've made the decision to follow Jesus. But here's the bad news. The bad news is if you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, the bad news is if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, that God remembers the sins you've forgotten. God remembers the sins you've forgotten. This is how God sees us. Romans 3 goes on in verse 23 to tell us this, For all have sinned, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And so this is a universal truth. A universal truth that every single one of us has failed to meet that standard. That standard which isn't you do more good than bad. The standard which isn't be a good person, be a positive person, be an encouraging soul. No, the standard is perfection and we're told here that every single one of us 
every single one of us, fails to meet that standard. This is a universal truth. For everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. So God's expectation is perfection, and we don't measure up. And what happens when people fail to meet expectations? What happens when people fail to meet expectations? At best, it strains relationships. At worst, it severs them. What happens when you have somebody on your team at work who continually shows up late, doesn't call in, just doesn't show up, or just does a really bad job? They've been trained, they've been worked with, they've, they've been walked along in a process to improve, and they just they don't do it. They fail to live up to expectations. What happens in a healthy work environment? Well, at best, at best, their employment is strained. At worst, they're fired. They're let go. There's a strain and a severing of the relationship because they failed to meet expectations. What happens in marriage? When marriage partners fail to live up to the vows that they made to one another, at best, there's a strain in the relationship. At worst, the relationship gets severed. Because expectations were not met. The expectations and the standards that God has for every single one of us is that we would be perfect. Why? Because God is perfect and He is holy. And none of us measure up. None of us meet that standard. So our relationship with our Creator is strained and it's severed because we don't meet His standard. Because His standard is righteousness, His standard is holiness, and we are imperfect people. And so that doesn't affect God's love for us. It doesn't affect God's desire that we would have a relationship with Him. He still loves us. He still desires for us to have that relationship with Him. But the relationship has been severed because we have a perfect God and we are imperfect people. But that's not where the story ends. And we have hope. Romans 3 goes on. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of Jesus, that our relationship does not have to stay shattered. Our relationship does not have to stay severed. Our relationship does not have to stay strained because of our imperfection. The hope of what Jesus has done on our behalf and accomplished on our behalf and made available to every single one of us, not because of what we do, not because of what we can earn, but because it's a gift to us, the hope of that is that we could have a renewed and restored relationship with our Creator. In spite of the fact that we are imperfect people, we can experience the perfection that God mandates because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. And how is this sent to us? That we do more good than bad? That we try really hard to earn it? That we give away everything that we... No. How is this given to us? As a gift. As a gift. 
The sacrifice of Jesus offers us grace. It's a gift. And in our context and in our society, a lot of people have a really hard time with this concept and this idea. Because there are a number of people who don't want to receive a handout. And there are a number of people who want to work to accomplish everything. There are a number of people who don't want to admit any dependency. There are a number of people who want to accomplish anything and everything by themselves. That they are owed it, that they have earned it, that they deserve it. And grace tells us there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. There is no way that you can earn this thing or deserve this thing. This thing is a gift. And the only option you have of really experiencing it is to let go of your pride and realize this isn't dependent upon yourself. And to receive it. To accept it. Not because of anything you have done. Not because of anything you have achieved or could achieve. But because God loves you. Even though you don't meet His standard. Even though you don't measure up. He still loves you. And He offers you this gift. But it can't be earned. And it can't be deserved. And it can't be bought. It must be received. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Which means this, that Jesus appeased and satisfied God's wrath against the sins we've committed. We don't measure up to that standard of God, which is perfection, because there's sin in our life. And Jesus has appeased and satisfied God's wrath. And I know this can be, this can be a challenging concept for some people. We know from 1 John 4 that God is love. And so sometimes there can be this, this disconnect in our minds. Sometimes there can be this challenge in our minds of how can a God who is full of love also be a God who has, who has wrath? How does that work? And some people have grown up in environments that are incredibly unhealthy. Some have grown up in environments that tragically are abusive. And some of you have seen displays of, of anger and wrath in, in horrendous ways, in, in ways nobody should ever have to experience. And that's clouded your view somewhat of God. But we don't get to make God to live in a box of our understanding. We don't get to create God to operate and function on our own terms. We don't get to put God within our specifications and say, God, you have to operate this way. And if you've ever been a victim if you've ever been taken advantage of, if you've ever been abused, this idea of wrath, you can understand a little more. You can understand this idea that somebody should be held responsible for the choices that they have made. That has changed and impacted your world. That has made your life more difficult. That has shattered your hopes and your dreams. 
that has broken you in some places. Whether you're comfortable with the idea of God's wrath or not, we can't dismiss it as part of his character. And the message of the cross and the hope of the cross is that there on the cross, we see the full wrath of God poured out upon God himself. Because of my imperfections, because of your imperfections, because of the imperfections of people who have victimized you, it's all poured out on Jesus there to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at that present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this, this just forces us to, to, to ask a couple more questions. Maybe you've wondered, maybe you've wondered, how did people in the Old Testament, how did they get to heaven? How did, how did that work before Jesus died on the cross? And, and why is that important for what we're talking about? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But if you've ever wondered that, the way that people in the Old Testament made it to heaven was instead of how we look back to the sacrifice of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, that he paid the price for all of our sins, we look back. People in the Old Testament would look forward to. They would look forward to the coming Messiah. They would look forward to God coming to, to pay the price for sin and being victorious over sin. So we look back to what Jesus did. People in the Old Testament would look forward to what Jesus would do. Now, why is that important for what we're talking about here? Because when we think about people in the Old Testament who had to look forward, the penalty for their sin hadn't been paid yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross and rose again three days later. The price of their sin hadn't been paid yet. And so God showed them incredible patience, incredible patience in holding their sin until Jesus would pay for that price, pay that price once and for all. And nothing's changed about God's character. God shows incredible patience with you and I. And some of you know that firsthand because your life was a train wreck and you remember it. You remember what your life was like before you came to Jesus. You remember the choices and the decisions that you made. And you look back and you shake your head and you're like, God was so incredibly patient with me. He's so incredibly patient with me. And the reality is God's incredibly patient with every single one of us. Again, Romans 6 tells us that the cost of our sin is death, and that's a physical death, which we'll all experience. But there's also a spiritual death that's associated with that. Meaning, the fact that God doesn't kill us the instant we sin. It's an example of His patience, of His incredible patience and His love for us. 
So I just want to remind those of you, I mean, maybe it's the fifth time or the 50th time or the 500th time or the 5,000th time you've fallen into that sin that you've sworn off and you said, it's not going to get me again. I'm not going to do it again. And you find yourself there again and you're giving up hope and you're frustrated. And this isn't a license to just keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Fight it. But it is a reminder that God still loves you and he is incredibly patient with you. And all of this, all of this points to Jesus and the grace that he offers us. One day when I was in high school, I woke up on a weekend morning and I decided, hey, I'm really hungry because I was in high school and I woke up on a weekend or really any morning and you're just always hungry. And I went into our pantry and I'm like, oh, we have oatmeal. That's not good. And so I grabbed my wallet, and I had a five and a, and a one in there. And I got in my car, and I drove to McDonald's. And I turned in, and there on the window stickers were two Egg McMuffins for two bucks. Now, you're not getting that deal anymore, all right? This was a while ago. I was in high school. When I got there, I stepped up to the counter. I'm like, hey, I'll take your two Egg McMuffins and go ahead and throw two hash browns on there and a large orange juice. Because I'm in high school and I'd work that off driving home, right? My metabolism, it doesn't matter. Just load it up and then we'll get Taco Bell for lunch or something. And I, they tell me the total, it was like four or five something. And I pull out my wallet and somehow in the drive to McDonald's, the $5 bill that I had in my wallet turned into a $1 bill. And I had two $1 bills. And that was not enough money to pay for my food. And I just kept looking at it for a minute like it was going to change back. But the magic that happened on the ride to McDonald's was no longer occurring. And then I put my hands in my pockets as though the Lord would just provide something. And he didn't. I had pocket lint. And um, <laughs> I was standing in line with $2 on me. I didn't have a credit card at that time. I was in high school. And all I had on me was, was $2 and 89 Chevy Beretta with a moonroof that was caulked shut so it wouldn't leak and a random gash that was, that was on the dash of the car that was there when, when we got it. And no one's really sure how it happened, but it was there. And that's all that I had to my name. That's all that I owned it, that was with me at the time. And the guy in front of me said, I got you covered. And he bought my breakfast. I'd never seen the man before. And I'd never seen him since. But I had a debt that I had no way of paying. And he swooped in. And he paid the debt that I couldn't. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't know who he was. There was no way I could pay the man back. He just paid my debt. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot buy it. You just have to receive it. So we saw a couple weeks ago that as a result of us being reconciled to God, 
our response to that is to share the hope that we have. To share the hope that we have. And last week we saw that as a result of Jesus being our mediator between us and God, that the response that we have to that is to pray and to have a relationship with God and to strive after that intimacy with God, knowing that Jesus is constantly being our mediator. We're recipients to grace. Not because we do more good than bad. Not because we're positive people. Not because we can buy it. But because God and His love for us has offered us a gift. And our response to that is to receive that gift. And then as a result of that gift, to live lives that are full of love. To live lives that scream and proclaim and shout the hope of Jesus by all that we say and all that we do. To live lives that point people to the hope that we've experienced because we had a severed relationship with our Creator and that relationship has been restored. Not because of anything we have done or could do. but because of God's love for us. And that compels us to live lives that proclaim this hope to everyone we encounter. God, I pray that as a result of us being recipients of your grace, when we had nothing to offer you, you still loved us I pray as a result of that, God, the fact that we cannot earn it, we do not deserve it, it cannot be bought, God, it just has to be received. I pray that we would receive it with open arms, and I pray for those of us who've made the decision to follow after you, that our lives would be forever changed. We would remember It's not because of us. We had nothing to offer you. We can't meet your standard, but you still loved us even in the midst of that, and you met the standard on our behalf. So as we've received your grace, let it impact every area of our life that we lovingly want everyone we encounter to experience this same hope that we have. That we celebrate what you have done for us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because you love us and gave us a gift. And we celebrate that, God. We celebrate that by worshiping you. We celebrate that by serving others. We celebrate that by loving. We celebrate it by generously giving back to you in our worship and in our generosity now, God, I pray that they would be an indication of the celebration for the gift you've offered us. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for this gift, the gift of your son, Jesus, and the grace which he offers us, and it's in his name that we do pray.